Welcome to Ticket to Gamehenge, the podcast that discusses the science behind how to get your friends and family to love our favorite band, Fish, as well as other fish-related topics from the community. You can grab a free chapter of the book at TicketToGameHenge.com. My name is Adam, and joining me as always is my good buddy, Dr. K. All right, here we are, another week back at it. Ticket to Game Henge, the podcast that discusses fish and how to get your friends and family into fish. And oddly enough, we never talk about Game Henge. One day, I'm sure we will. Um, you know, I, I think for anybody that listens, it's it's hopefully an obvious, uh, like, Game Henge is the realm of the fandom and the fishdom and all of that <laughs> stuff, right? Yeah, it's a metaphor. Come on. It's, uh, I, remember, I remember back in high school when, when uh, Mr. Minwala taught me about what a metaphor was. Remember Mr. Minwala? Jammer? Do I remember, Mr. Yeah. Do I remember oh. the age when teachers used to be able to say things to students, and not lose <laughs> their jobs over them? You bet. I remember the golden age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um. I don't even know where to begin. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. Uh, a few things on the menu today, of course. Um, I guess I first let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Frank Zappa. We were talking about the Zappa documentary last week, and we're talking a little bit about uh, my limited experience with Zappa and what we knew, what I knew, and uh, yeah. So I guess I have some follow up thoughts. Um, so I watched it that same day, right? I got home last uh, Tuesday night, watched it really, really late. I fell asleep with about forty five minutes left at like two thirty in the morning. Yeah, yeah. sort of a recent record for me. Um, but really, really interesting. I didn't, I, like I said, I didn't really know much about his personality going in, but total, total visionary that wasn't willing to compromise any of his vision for anybody. Not one note. Right? Not one note. And that's, you know, and as a guy who I'm very much wired to please other people, that's, that's just in my DNA and how I am. I'm all about harmony. And I used to really avoid conflict with people. It's something that I've improved on, but I really, in a strange way, although it made me uncomfortable at times to see the conflict that he could create, it also made me very envious of that ability that some people have just to be able to separate it and just truly not give a flying fuck about what somebody else's opinion is. It's uh, so, uh, it felt almost liberating to watch that type of an attitude, you know? So can I, can I disagree and provide you with some examples? Sure, sure, always. So, and I, again, this is not... This is just me and you having a conversation, but the stuff that, um, you know, you, you told me about with, uh, recent events with your family. Yeah. yeah. I would argue that's very, you were, you had a very clear vision on what you were, and you were okay with creating a whole bunch of conflict. Number two, I guarantee you that if your actual values were threatened, like somebody threatened your family or something was going to happen to your children, you would have no trouble starting a conflict. Mm. You're a people pleaser in realms that don't matter to you as much as music mattered to Frank Zappa. And music mattered to Frank Zappa above everybody in his family, his wife, his children. The, the values that we have are different for people like him and are different for people like Trey because of the choices that they made. So somebody is threatening something that is like the pinnacle of your life, you will fight tooth and nail for it. That's interesting. I, I think it's that's a really, really good point. Very insightful. Um, and I definitely agree with it. I will say when it comes to, I guess, those conflicts that I faced recently, I don't think I could have done that five years ago. Um, right. So there, there, there's definitely something to that. And obviously we're all on an evolutionary journey. We keep on, you know, changing as people and 
ideally we learn and we grow and we admit mistakes and all that fun stuff. But um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. So maybe, maybe I can get there depending on the subject matter, you know, and I, I guess, I guess it's a good point. And as you were saying that I was thinking about uh, Steve, Steve Jobs, I read a couple of Steve Jobs autobiographies, not autobiographies, never wrote his own, but the Walter Isaacs book and a couple of others. And um, it was very true about him as well. He, you know, he, he put his work, his passion, that company above everything else and wasn't willing to sacrifice or wasn't willing I, I don't think you can, uh, I don't think you can, you need to be a, a dickhead about it mm -hmm. to get what you want. You know? I think Trey is, Trey is proving that to be true for sure. Well, I think, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, like he's the one that picks the musician. He's the one that gets to, to pick what stays, but Trey likes it. You know, we talked about this last week. Trey likes it when people add their, their own thoughts. It's, he understands that it's a living, breathing piece of art. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was brought up in the documentary that, you know, once he puts it out there, it's out there for the world to take as their own and he's okay with letting it go. Um, uh, contradictory Cause I listened very intently to those parts. The, the parts, you know, the parts that I found the most fascinating were the were those parts, you know, where they were talking about his vision, the way that he viewed things. And it's just, you know, it's it's interesting, and I was almost contradictory of like, okay, so I created this, and then it's out there, and then you can do what you want with it. Right. So, so to be clear, we're talking about Trey and what calls you home, not Frank Zappa and Zappa. Well, I'm talking about Frank Zappa. Oh, oh, you are sorry. Yeah, I'm still I'm commenting now because that's part, part seemed contradictory. You yeah. Know? It's still live, and there's bootlegs of it, and you know, it's interesting how he handled that and how he was so tight on his composition and the direct expression of the notes being played by the musicians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found it, uh, I also found it really interesting to hear from the original Mothers of Invention, like the original group and uh, that were with them for those four or five years and um, enjoyed hearing about how hard they worked at it, how dedicated they were. You know that venue in New York that they played six, you know, like six nights of the week, and most of the time the same, the same crowd showing up, the same three hundred people six nights of the week. But it gave them that platform. Um, but a, but a dedication to the art. But it was definitely tough to see them talk about how hard it was to work with Frank as a person, because I've. I've worked with people that are tough to be around, yet you're still committed to do the job. You got to feed your family, all of that stuff. And I definitely empathize with them, you know, choosing to be a musician and being able to perform on that level, but also at, at times just dealing with such a prickly type of a type of a person. It's interesting, you know, because right? Because it seemed like, at least when I was reading about Steve Jobs, it seemed like people were grateful to be around Steve Jobs in retrospect. Right? Like, right. In respect, they were like, he drove the best work out of me. Mm. I didn't get that from, I didn't get that from the, other than that one lady who broke down at the end. Yeah. I didn't yeah. get that from anybody that was around Frank Zappa. Anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is kind of crazy to think, right? They, they, they always give him credit for his ability and vision, but they, yeah, there was always the but, but, and then in, into how they felt about him. It, so it might have been just the, just the amount of like, cynicism and sarcasm that he has spewed you know like even steve jobs and you watch the interviews with him he seemed like a hopeful human being for the future like don't fuck with my shit but mm -hmm. i'm hopeful for a better future mm -hmm. right or i just didn't get that from frank at all and again yeah. you know like we're watching it's here's the part that's interesting too is we're watching a, a documentary that's curated by the person filming the documentary and the people who own the estate of Frank Zappa who don't want us to see everything. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, I, I think that's 
like just so totally valid to point out. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. You, you always have to look at the the bias and who owns the information, who's putting it out there, and it's something that we could all be better with with all the information that we see. And yeah, no, I think it's a really really good point to put out there. Well, just so we're clear, you know, I, I, you know, one of the benefits of of having started of having studied marketing for so long, one of the best ads, old school print and copy is the the advertorial so you know for like a drug it'll be like it'll go like this um uh science on the breakthrough for new sex drug um apply for your free trial right so they make you think that you're entering into an experiment it's an ad purposely designed by the pharmaceutical company to get you to take this drug for free and then pay for it later right typical drug dealer mentality first taste is free 60 minutes first came out Right. So, um, uh, the guy's name is, and he worked on mash. His name, I think is his last name is Alda. I don't remember the first name. Uh, Alan Alda. Alan Alda. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. You know, he's the one, he's the one that got created for 60 minutes and they're like, well, you know, what's the secret to, to 60, you know, to 60 minutes is fame. This is his line. I'm feeding the public hot dogs. They think that it's broccoli. Right. He's selling a smart show. That's really trash propaganda disguised to be intelligent. Hmm. Interesting. Right. So you get people watching these documentaries on Netflix. Oh, I watched a Netflix documentary. Well, that, that doesn't mean number one, that it's factual. Number two, that it's well-sourced or that it's even true, but it was presented in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. That you thought it was like something amazing. Like this is the way to go. Right. So you got to be weary, man. You have to be weary of all that stuff. It's done mm-hmm. really, really well. It's done in a convincing fashion, but convincing sure. fashion does not make it true. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think uh, it's going to be a more and more difficult world to navigate the truth in. You know, it's getting harder. <laughs> it really. Fake well, news. Like, all of it. And we're, so wi- and we're so wired to think faster, sooner now that nobody's got the time to actually do the research and find out if they, if what they read satisfies, satisfies them, they believe it to be true and we move on. And it's all like that. Yeah. There's actually a really good podcast that Megan listened to called uh, the rabbit hole about how um, this guy got really down a rabbit hole of the type of information that he saw. It became a conspiracy theorist and he got to a point where through Google and all the information everywhere that he looked, he couldn't find anything but that type of information. He got into this rabbit hole so far from reality, just by all the algorithms, you know, doing what they do uh, and curating his content for him, essentially. And that's, uh, I see it in the stuff I look at on Reddit. I'm like, wow, like they, they're putting this for me because they think that this is what I want to see, you know? And it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm being duped in some senses and maybe in other ways I'm being a little bit more clear in my thinking, but yeah, it's definitely an ongoing battle for sure. For sure. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's, let's, oh, I wanted to point out too. So at the end of last week's show, uh, you recommended me to, to listen to 71598. I think you would ask if I listened to it yet. And I had said no, which clearly I had. Because as soon as I started playing it, I was like, oh my God, I listened to this a week ago. And I had also listened to it earlier this year. So really it was my third time listening to it. Definitely an all-timer. Great show. I mean, I love the uh, love the tweezer into California love. Yeah, it's California. So yeah, that oh. song takes me back to a very specific time and place. It takes me back to. Do you remember the little club on Southdale? No, not on Southdale. Sorry, on Wellington Road. It's not there anymore. It was right near the keg called Hillbillies. Oh yeah, Hillbilly Jims. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Hillbilly Jims. Is that what it was? 
Yeah, we just called uh, short. Yeah, I remember they had like an underage night one time. Yeah. <laughs> I was there when I was 18 and that was like a big popular song. So whenever I hear that song, I go back to that time. I was dating Megan Rose and everything else. Like it was, it was high school, crazy to think. So that's, that is one thing that I do love about music. It takes me to certain, certain time. I'm actually pissed, you know, looking back. We could have been listening to Fish and going to the goddamn shows instead of oh. being a hundred losers. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. You know, if, if I could get into a time machine, I would t- I'd totally choose my uh, summers differently and the concert that I went to. What was the very first concert that you went to? I forget if I've asked you that. In uh, Toronto. Uh, I think it was 722.99. And who was that? Sorry. Oh, the first concert ever. First ever concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses, man. Guns N' Roses when? Guns N' Roses, Cops Coliseum. Use your illusions for it. Jeez, Lee. So that's what? 91, 92, 93? 93, somewhere in there? Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think of what mine would be. Game changer. Somebody hit Axl Rose with uh, somebody hit Axl Rose with uh, glow stick and they, they they walked off stage. Yeah, yeah. Really? Do you remember when I got tickets the day of the show when Guns N' Roses was making the comeback with Buckethead? It was just out with my dad and our pharmacist. Of all people. Fun, yeah, and we went day of and there was, yeah, that was all kinds of shenanigans. That was, that was great. That was great. That was a good Saturday night. Um, and Buckethead sounded awesome. I know he's no Slash, but man. what a character to watch. Um, what was the thing you had shown me with Buckethead prior to that? Was it a Primus video that he was in that you and I watched at your place? Probably. You were aware of Buckethead. He played with Primus, I think, for a bit. What's he doing now? I have no idea. Hmm. Maybe that's a good follow-up for next week. Where? Where's Buckethead? Where's Buckethead now? I wonder what Buckethead even looks like. But yeah, the way, hey, great player, but his movement, he'd do like play like he was a robot. And with that bucket on his head, you couldn't see an expression. So just a simple head tilt. Was like a very Michael Myers kind of a kind of a vibe, right? Really cool. It's okay, probably, probably super freeing, by the way. So like, you know, that DJ Marshmallow. Like, I don't know what he looks like. It'd probably be freeing to be famous and to be able to like go in the world and people not know who you are. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, um, I would think that the novelty of fame wears off relatively quick with most people once the privacy is really invaded or they can't do what they want to do. Um, all right, fishiest fish song. So we, we talked a little bit about this last week. And uh, in the comments, we, we sort of put that we need to sort of get an idea of what that even means and what the, and what the criteria for the fishiest fish song is. So I had an idea yesterday. I was driving home and I was listening to a song that I think will ultimately be determined as the fishiest fish song through the following criteria. But I need help with it. What I'm thinking is this, is we, I want to take what I think are like between the two of us, take the 25 fishiest fish songs. Okay? Wow. Well, yeah, I think it needs to be a fairly big number because the catalog is so big. And I think, hear me out. Okay. And, and I think in order for this to be successful, we're going to have to reach out to the community to, to try to get some people to help us with this. So we have more samples of the same sort of rating. So what I would like to do is take these 25 or so songs, um, create, I think, anywhere from four to six or seven, depending on what we determine, categories that you'd rate each song. So things like lyrical depth, the jam, the jamability of the song, um, comp- compositional, uh, you know, those types of things. 
And then through multiple people, basically every song gets a score from each person. And then we average them all out and we essentially rank them one through 25. We give other people the opportunity to add five songs of their own if they feel that, you know, there's something missing from the list that we created. And ultimately the top 25 songs will get comprised with a score of the fishiness, whatever we determine it to be. And then in subsequent podcasts, we talk about three or four at a time and we whittle it down to number one. I think I already know what it's going to be based on categories, but what do you think about that? I think that's great. I think uh, because my mind always goes to how can we make that happen? I think you can set up a survey through SurveyMonkey for free Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and give people the option to both vote and to write and it'll even tally the results for you. Right, right. Okay. I think so that's how we can do it. Now I'm interested in, I, I think more thoughts going to have to go to like what the criteria are. Right. And that's, and that's it. So I'm thinking about everything from, you know, making sure that anybody who's scoring it does it, you know, with the intent of doing it somewhat seriously, not just putting tens across the board because it's their favorite song, actually looking at it somewhat objectively. Um, but yeah, really determining what makes the fishiest songs. So. You know, so I, I think obviously jamming is one. I think, um, I don't know if the term is, um, like, I'm, I'm thinking about lyrics and there are some songs that are great. I think like Run Like an Antelope, you know, could be one of the fishiest fish songs, but when you look at it lyrically, doesn't really hit the mark on that one. See, I disagree. Set the mm. gear shift to the high gear of your soul. Mm. Fish, man. You know? Okay. I don't think yeah. that, I don't think it needs to be like it just needs to be it needs to be Tom Marshall ish, right? Ah, okay. okay. Right, it needs to be Tom Marshall ish. Like it doesn't have to be this epic story. Otherwise, you you would probably pick all the songs from Gamehenge, right? Like Divided Sky, the wind blows high. <laughs> pretty fishy, man. Yeah. yeah. Right. What else do you need? Or boy right. and God, shit. Like <laughs> it's pretty fishy. Yeah. You know, I think the I think the lyrics are important, especially because it's something that I love about fish. I think the lyrics are fantastic. The ones that I like, I really like, and it's a turnoff, right? You like you want it to you want it to be polarizing for people. Hmm. Okay. All right. So I have I have jamming lyrics composition. Uh, what else needs to go in there? Like it. Um, like I was thinking about that. I think there are certain songs that seem to focus more on one player than the other player. Does it need to be like a, all four guys get to shine kind of a song? Is that sort of a, any other ideas? I think that they, I think for most of the songs they shine. And I think, I think you encompass, again, this is off the top of my head. I might change. Yeah, yeah. I, that I might change my mind. I think if you throw in jam ability, I think that encompasses all of them. Right. right? Because they all get to change the jam whenever they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. You don't okay. need, like, we don't need Machine Gun Trey, you know, doesn't encompass fishability, even though I personally like that. Right. You know, I don't think we need Machine Gun Trey to have a song be, you know, maximally fishy. Right. Yeah. No, like, I'm, like, I would, yeah, 100%. I think we talked about that before. It's about, not about how many notes you can play and the speed you can play it. And it's great at times, but it's about voice. It's about melody. It's about structure. It's about all those, yeah. that stuff, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. So something that I like to do, like, I wonder if we can get a few people involved just to get some sort of an idea and um, 
try to determine what that would potentially look like. Um, might be open to interpretation a little bit too much, but that's what can make it fun. All right, so I will look into that, see if I can get a survey and put that out there. I think, the, I think the survey would have to start because there's, 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 there's some people who probably have insight on like what would make a song, what constitutes a song like as being fishy that we're missing. So I think you have to, you always have to start at the standards, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. maybe if you're breaking it down, I would start with, hey, you know, here's what, just share the idea and be like, hey, here's what we have, you know, what other things would you, you know, would you say? And then, you know, 90% of the responses are not going to make any sense or be stupid. And then, and then, you know, 5% are going to be really thought out and really good. Right. right. Okay, cool. I will see what I can find out there. But um, yeah, I think I know what song is going to be number one based on, but that's the criteria that I've come up with. I'm open to something. And I'm kind of annoyed at myself because when I was driving home yesterday, I felt like I had more than more than three categories. I'm looking at it going, that's not it. that impressive. Dude, my like Swiss cheese, man. You got to write it down. Yeah, well, but, but, you know, I'm in the car. I really can't, right? Yeah, I, gotta, sure. I should do like audio notes or something or figure out a way to do that. Little reminders. Like uh, Darnell used to, used to call his own voicemail at home. I remember um, when yeah. our high school football coach would call me. He was our guidance counselor. He'd pull me out of class to go over plays and, <laughs> and different things. And I'd be up in his office and all of a sudden he'd get an idea. He'd call his home and leave a voicemail on his messaging machine so that he could remind himself. It was pretty funny. Um, so, okay, I will try to work on determining what the fishiest fish song is. Uh, today, I just happened to stumble upon an article about uh, the 25-year anniversary of a show in Philadelphia at the Spectrum, uh, 12-15-95. And as I got reading the article, it's a show that I'm unfamiliar with, uh, I started to question, could that, could that be the fishiest fish show? Um, 25 years is kind of crazy. And of course, I put myself back into where was I in uh, December of 1995, 10th grade. Um, yeah. Yeah, waiting for my leather jacket to arrive. <laughs> that, uh, was that Jason Allison's New, Year party, New Year's party that year? Was that nope. that year? No. Nope. Uh, no, 95. I don't know where we would have been. We would have been, you would have been 11th grade. I would have been 10th. I don't know. I don't think we did anything major, major crazy. The following year, I had a New Year's party. Uh, in 96, Jason's was in 97. Probably wandering the streets like a bunch of tools. Yeah, probably. We were good at that, though. So um, I'm trying to find the article, and it seems to have disappeared, but I will find it. Um, couple, a couple notes about the, about the show, just to make it sort of the fishiest fish show. There were a couple of secret language secret secret language references in it. Yep. So they did the Simpsonses, which, which, you know... Um, the, the, the person that wrote the article felt that it was most people's first fish show, although it was sold out. It was the biggest show of the tour, 19,000 people. It's the first, and kind of why I asked you this uh, question earlier, it was the first, it was the venue of Trey's very first concert. He went to see Jethro Tall there, and he talks about that in the show. So I think, like, imagine, you know, if you're, you want to grow up to be an athlete or musician, you know, you go to see your first baseball game at whatever field, and you become a baseball player, and you get to play on that field. It's got to be a pretty pretty cool moment so uh i thought that was really really neat uh fishman does a, does a cover uh of elvis's suspicious minds in a lit up cape i mean uh wilson right so you get nineteen thousand people chanting chanting wilson um uh chalk dust opener 
it just, uh, yeah, it just sounded like a really, really great show to be at, especially if it was your first first time. And I was also thinking about the timing of that. They hadn't had a festival yet. It was the end of 95. Oh, audience chess move. It was that tour, right? So all these really interesting fishy type of things happening. And after reading it, I honestly thought about this and I wanted to ask you the question, are those types of shows possible now? Like, will we, like, will those types of things ever happen? Like, when you think of what the fishiest fish show is, are we ever going to see something like that? Well, no, because they already stopped doing most of that stuff. Yeah. Why? I don't just know. Grown up, just grown up? Just, maybe, just maybe that's, done it? Well, maybe that's why, because again, that was before my time, right? So yeah. maybe that's why some of the people who are really passionate about seeing fish from the beginning, maybe, maybe it's part of the... Maybe part of it is, and again, if somebody, you know, if this like resonates or if I'm totally out to lunch, I'd love somebody to email me, but maybe that that's why they're not crazy about the newer style. Maybe they miss all those things, you know, maybe they miss that energy and that, uh, that anything could happen, like physically right. anything could happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. You might be right. I, I don't know. It's just, um. And I guess there's different elements of it now, right? Like if you're if you're a young guy coming up and you're at a show, you're gonna you're gonna have some things that are unique to you and part of that generation. But yeah, it's just uh, it's tough to say. But it 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 does sort of put them into a unique time, you know. And even earlier today or yesterday, they announced that the newest live fish release is gonna be uh, eleven twenty eight ninety four. I think is what I saw. Yeah. Montana, I think. Yeah, Bozeman, right? Right, mm -hmm. Bozeman, Montana. Which uh, never been there, probably never will go there. Um, Sorry right. if you're from Bozeman, Montana. Right. Super <laughs> awesome there, by the way. What's that? Yeah, Big Sky State. Yeah. Beautiful. Probably. But is there anything to do? Yes, you fish. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, dude, that article about that show has disappeared. I had it queued up and everything, but it was from uh, Glide Magazine, I think is what it was. Well, but it, um, You got to remember something that you read. Well, no, just about how fishy it was. It was great energy. Um, uh, Harry Hood just... It, it just felt like a very fish fishy show you know so, really quirky i think another sorry to interrupt you i think another interesting thing you know if we're talking about like standards and criteria is what would make up the fishiest show mm -hmm. i think let me think here i think you would need um oh man the fewest amount of songs as possible in a set Right. Or, you know, or like the S show from 20, what was that? 2010 or 2011, right? That's just a random thing. And that's something in 3.0 that is very like, okay, that's really neat. Um, the field of mimes was going to be really, really neat at Curveball, but that never happened because of the water thing that happened there. Um, the fishiest fish show. I think you'd have to do, I think you'd have to factor in like multiple night runs at the same venue to make yeah. it a fishiest fish show. I think you'd have to factor in like, I actually think you'd have to factor in some machine gun tray or like the way the players played that night. Yep. Sure. You'd have to factor in things like surprises, like surprise cover songs that got busted. Out, say. Surprise jams from like Haley's Comet into like a 22 minute jam. Yes. Well, you'd have to yes. All that stuff in new songs, the excitement of the band, like shit that happened outside of the venue. Yep. Yeah. All that would have to go into it. And, yeah, I guess with 20,000 people at a show, everybody's got a unique take on how special it was to them and how fishy it was to them, depending on whatever. That's why you try to get objective criteria, right? To say, yeah, yeah, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it is interesting that that is all the thing. like, and I'm sure there's more if we were to sit or solicit other people's opinions, we could get a lot more about what goes into the fishiest fish show. Maybe, you know, does there have to be some dancing with, with Mike and, or with Mike and Trey? Does there have to be the trampoline? Um, you know, those are the types of things that are super, super fishy. Like I, uh, yeah, they're so good, man. They're so unique. Like I, I just love the fact that this type of thing even exists. And again, I am annoyed that we weren't going to see those shows back in high school and everything else. Duh. Well, invent the time machine, will you? Get on it so we can correct. Oh, that. buddy, if I could, I would. It's funny, people would always go. Back. If I could, I would. Song, people, uh, oh, song, yeah, yeah, exactly. people always. Oh, you know, I would. You know, I would just go back and give myself a good shake in like grade nine. I'd be like, listen, pal, things are gonna be good. Here's what you're gonna do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only, if only were that you're easy. Worry, you're gonna worry less about X, Y, and Z. You know. Yeah. You're not gonna waste time watching TV and doing bullshit. You're gonna do these things. Right. You got it. Um, although one thing that I do like to, uh, that I did like doing in terms of wasting time and watching TV were the Beacon Jams segue. That was a terrible segue. Um, but yeah, that little 16-minute documentary just came out called What Calls You Home about the whole idea of the Beacon Jams and some uh, behind-the-scenes interviews with Trey and some of the other players. And uh, yeah, that was a nice little watch. Um, really kind of summed it up, I think, if anybody hadn't been watching them um, and maybe wasn't so close to the band, it was more of a casual fan. It's a nice little recap of what it was all about. Um, there was one thing that uh, that Trey said that really stuck with me and really resonated with me. Any guesses on what it is? Uh, I'm, I can only go on what I really liked the most, and I loved the part where he talked about John Fishman, man. I got exactly, my- exactly. Oh, Chills. Oh my. Chills. Like when he said that, you know, when one of us goes, he said, I really hope it's me first because I can't imagine being around without, like, oh my God. It was just like, geez. It, um, yeah, really, really kind of hit me hard about how appreciative he is and, you know, uh, uh, how it kind of it kind of got me thinking about how, I guess, serendipitous it is or kismet, whatever you want to call it, that two guys like that had the opportunity to meet and to form that relationship. And then it got me thinking about similar, not similar pairings, but in music, you know, what if John Lennon and Paul McCartney never met, you know, uh, Jagger and Richards and those types of pairings. And to hear Trey just call out that, you know, although he said it's no secret that the, the musical relationship he has with him is unlike anybody else. Yeah, I just felt really, really good to uh, see that. Um, and it got me thinking about, I was listening to, I'm, I'm just about to start the new, like the third set for 1231, 2009. So I'm just about done, 2009. But in 1228, at, it's a, it's one of those rare occurrences where the band kind of didn't know what was happening and almost stopped playing because like so they were at the end of Maki Supa Policeman, which uh, I always love and don't hear frequently enough. Um, they're in the jam and Trey just started doing these like eh, eh, on his guitar. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mike and Trey, or sorry, Mike and Paige both stopped playing, which you don't really hear like they were in the middle of it and they were like wait what's he doing where is he going and fishman was the only one that kind of went along with them because i'm sure unless it's part of the song the drummer's going to keep playing no matter what right and that's just what they're wired to, to do and they they stumbled for about three four seconds and then got back into it but the thing that was awesome was two minutes later trey was like fuck it and did it again 
<laughs> it was just, and they kind of got what he was doing. It never really came back around or turned into anything, but uh, it just sort of like reminded me that I had heard that last week. And then yesterday I had heard the quote about uh, his relationship with Fishman. And I was like, fuck, that was like that night in 2009. They were the only two that stuck it out during that little three, four awkward seconds. Cause that's just, yeah. So really, really cool. Um, and, and just seeing all the setup that goes into a show like that, right? Like we've said it before, anybody that's really good at something makes it look easy. And when you only see the players on the stage or the back of the stage, whatever you want to call it, you don't necessarily see all of the stuff that goes into making those events happen. You know, was, yeah. uh, I, as a musician, you know, cause I like, I'm, I'm, I, I have a band and, and we're just getting started. And like, I'm like, this, this is a new foray. Uh, mm-hmm. I would have really appreciated it. And I really liked the parts where they showed them at rehearsal. You know, mm-hmm. I think watching like the best fucking jam band ever rehearse would be beneficial to people who are in music. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of too is uh, the very beginning of Bittersweet Motel when they're playing Birds of a Feather and they're yeah. introducing the players of the band with the still yeah. shots of their face. And every time I watch that, I feel like I get tricked, tricked into thinking, oh, I'm going to get to see a lot of that, a lot of the rehearsal. And that's pretty much all you see of that. You know, the rest of the movie is on the road, at the gigs or whatever. And I would have loved to see, again, this, just... The- like, this just goes to show you, like, for content, you know? Like, if they just turned on, like, the camera at rehearsal, I would be, I would be glued to that. You know, I yeah. would not be able to look away. Yeah, yeah, I'd be very interested. I mean, even, yeah, I'd want to see it all. All the ideas, all the different things that actually, no, I don't like that, which I don't know if you'd hear a lot of. Just all of that. I think it'd be really, really cool. And probably helpful for somebody that's in a band to get an idea of what a really polished band looks like. You know, I had the. I think. I think. Sorry, if you, I think if you look in like musical contribution, you know, like I, I had this conversation with like, I can't remember who, but it was about Miles Davis. Every musician right now, and since Miles Davis has benefited from Miles Davis, whether they know it or not. Right. So the more right. that becomes known about Miles Davis, the more we can benefit because he was that type of person. Fish is that type of band. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Mm-hmm. And maybe we don't know all the effects just yet, but I'm saying, I wonder how much of it is hidden away behind closed doors that we won't ever get to see or hear for whatever reason, like rehearsal. Like you're the greatest jam band of all time. I'm pretty sure you've invented one or two, you know, things or new takes that would really benefit musicians in general if they heard it or had access to it. Now they don't owe that to us. I don't think they should do it just because, but nonetheless, I still believe that. Yeah. And then obviously over time, as they get studied more and, and, and the passage of time and they go away and we pass on, who knows in terms of what their legacy is going to look like. And I think not only just musically, but in terms of from a business point of view of running a band and, and some of the decisions that they made and things that they've done that are really against the grain, but have served them really, really well. You one, know, of, it's something... uh, one of the most harmful things perpetrated by our society when it comes to like the arts is that somehow the arts and business don't mix. It's just ridiculous. Right. Ridiculous. You know, the, the business model is fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, like, look at you're one of the, the, the biggest grossing bands that has in, of all time that's never had a hit record or a number one single or even got played on the radio. Right. So there's this like, you know, going back to Zappas, there's this machine over here that's churning Mm -hmm. up artists and this formula. And then you get these guys over here that did none of that, depend on none of that, and are the wealthiest musicians like on the planet. Yeah. 
yeah, and get to do whatever they want to do and, and how they want to do it. Yeah, yeah, pretty incredible. Well, and on that note, I don't have anything else. Did you? Okay, man. That sounds like yeah. a good sounds like a good time. Cool beans. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure you subscribe. Visit TicketToGameHenge.com. Smash the like button. Tell your grandparents we need to get more senior citizens listening to the show. I'm just kidding. Tell your kids. We want an audience for the future. All right. Take care, guys. Have a great week. You've been listening to Ticket to GameHenge. In addition to wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and of course, TicketToGameHenge.com, where you can grab a free chapter of the book, How to Get Your Friends Into Fish. Make sure you subscribe to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep sharing in the groove.